Hello, coming to you from New York City, this is Disaster Politics, the podcast that explores the intersection of policy and legislation with disaster preparedness, response, and recovery. I'm your host, Jeff Slegemelch. So here we are recording the the first, uh, I guess, live panel for Disaster Politics Podcast. Uh, this is your host, Jeff Slugamelch, and I'm joined by two partners in crime here on this podcast, uh, Aaron Sennert, a senior project manager at the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University's Earth Institute, and also Jonathan Surrey, who's the project director for communications and field operations also at the center. Thanks for joining, guys. Call her. No problem. All right. All right. So... Um, so, so disaster politics, we kind of named it, uh, you know, I went rogue, I threw it up on Twitter, and uh, what does it mean? I mean, what you guys have done a lot of work in the field and working with communications and talking, uh, communicating uh, research and other things to other audiences, and so you've kind of seen this firsthand. So what are those different kind of political forces that, that kind of work their way into disasters and affect the way that people respond and some of the choices they make? No, good. We're at a stalemate, everybody. <laughs> yeah. Nobody really wants to answer the question. That's right. I'll edit that part out. <laughs> go, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead, Jonathan. Uh, no, I think it's a, it's a really interesting question, and I and I spent a lot of time in the field working with our, our pilot communities for the Resilient Children Resilient Communities Initiative. I think it's still something that we are grappling with and understanding what it actually means um, uh, and what is what does politicking actually end up looking like. Um, and we see it play out a lot in personality types, but obviously we know that it extends much further um, beyond that into the development of policies um, and the relationships that we build with other organizations as well. Um, yeah, I feel like it's kind of like like dark matter, right? Like, like uh, we have uh, all these systems and this understanding of the way disaster response should work, but we know that politics is kind of this force that, that affects how it actually plays out. And uh, I guess that's part of what we're doing with this podcast, right, is trying to shed some light on that and trying to understand what these different forces are that maybe aren't necessarily written in the plan or part of the uh, instinct command system trainings that, that have those kinds of effects. Yeah, and I think uh, one of the biggest things is that um, more there are more politics that affect um, what happens after, before, during, and after a disaster than I think we realize. Uh, and I think that means that for this podcast in particular, um, there's so many different types of politics that we can t- talk about because um, it touches um, different entities which, uh, with the way like, people live, um, where they live, how they live, what resources are given to them. So this could be really interesting. And I think that there are so many different like kinds of politics, right? I know a lot of times when we think of politics, particularly after a... Uh, uh, fairly significant election year. I don't know if you guys followed that. What, wait, <laughs> what election? Wait, what? what? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was could have been scripted. Um, and that uh, you know, we, a lot of times we think of uh, politics as a four-letter word. Politics as being disruptive and making decisions that aren't based on science or on facts that are of an alternative nature. But that there are um, politics can also be used as a force for good, right? I mean, I think we've seen that in some of the communities after Sandy, where they take kind of political leaders within the community. Um, certainly going back to the 50s and 60s, where we've seen, you know, civil rights as sort of reforming this country's social structure for the better. Um, so um, I don't know, where have you, you guys have seen th- uh, a lot of communities after disasters, after uh, flooding, after hurricanes, things like that. Um, do you have examples of where you've seen maybe politics as a force for good or where it's gotten in the way? I, th- I think... For, for our experience, um, in our experience with the oil spill, um, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, I think one place that we actually did see not only a, an intersection of research and policy take place, but where, pol- where, where policy influenced a greater good was um, after, after the oil spill, we ran a, a survey and we identified that down in the Gulf there was, gonna, there was actually a need for mental health services, a need for mental health services that was going to exceed the local capacity. Um, and Senator Landrieu had picked up on that piece of research um, that we created and was able to um, use that to encourage uh, per- 
to encourage funding to come into the uh, to, to the Gulf into Mississippi to provide direct services for mental health. Um, and she saw a need. She was able to use her position to influence uh, policy and provide direct services to people who needed it the most. It's a, I think it's unusual to find such a clear example like that, but uh, it certainly was was really leveraging her position of power. Yeah. I think um, it's not a particular policy, but a government program, uh, AmeriCorps, and AmeriCorps NCCC, uh, National Civilian Community Corps. Uh, it's a government program that's obviously funded uh, by the government, and it's actually a weird topic because um, right now they it's on the it's on the market to be completely uh, cut off from funding. And I've seen being in AmeriCorps, I saw the benefits of having that program and how much money. Uh, that program actually saved the government ultimately by um, helping build houses for those even um, four or five years after Katrina. Um, just goes to show that that it can do good uh, if you allow it to. Jeff, I w just circling back to your original question, since uh, might as well put you on the spot too. We we we've all been talking about the fact that there are different kinds of politics. That mm -hmm. there are you know existing personalities. Um, there's the party systems that are in play. Um, there's financial interests um, that are at play, whether we, you know, want to see that's true or not. Um, but what kind of thinking about this podcast moving forward? You know, what kind of what are the broad buckets that you would place for the types of politics that that are occurring and that ultimately influence um, recovery from disaster? Yeah, you know, that, that's, a, that's a good question and one that I've been really afraid that someone was eventually going to ask me and I was going to have to have an answer for. <laughs> um, so thank you for, for accelerating Anytime. that, yep. that mm -hmm. process. The, um, but I think, you know, I, I mean, let's start with the most obvious electoral politics. This is actually far more pervasive in a lot of decision-making than we realize. I mean, we say all the time that we want to be proactive and think strategically about disasters, and yet in the House of Representatives, they're elected every two years, in the Senate every six years, local elections vary, but usually you know, between four and six. And, uh, and so that's always on the mind of, of the folks who are there. And the other is that, you know, in the House of Representatives, the members of the Appropriations Committee, they're, or any of the committees, they're not accountable to the nation at large, they're accountable to their district. And so where we see uh, increasingly polarized politics within the United States and increasing sort of geographic distinctions between different parts of the country, that's going to affect the legislation that's being written from the perspective of the representative of those districts. Um, there's a great article from uh, several, several years ago, um, maybe about 10 years ago now, called Imperfect Federalism, and it talks about that. It talks about how, uh, you know, a lot of this disaster decision-making is made based on, on what is politically salient what, and uh, what somebody can, can sort of uh, get approved by their constituency. And I think that works its way into what we do a lot. Um, a lot of additional programs are added on to get votes so that it benefits areas that may be of lower risk than others. At the same time, we're seeing in, in the budget that, that the Trump administration has put forward uh, an almost hostile nature towards uh, some of the coastal cities that are more vulnerable, taking a look at the National Flood Insurance Program and, um, you know, retooling uh, the way that that is paid for so that areas that are less vulnerable are not subsidizing those more vulnerable places. And so what that does, though, is, is by, by polarizing the budget and compartmenting it out, we're losing sort of those risk pools. We're losing the ability to really take a national perspective because when you break it down, there are all these individual political components. And then the others are, and then once the funding gets passed and the legislation gets passed, it has to be implemented. And the design of these programs, the prescriptions of the grants that are received by state and local entities are then further restricted by the interpretation of the legislation and what the agencies feel and the people in the agencies feel uh, are the most important. And a lot of times these are political appointees, and so they... Uh, insert things in the structure to prioritize one capability over another. And then all the way at uh, local politics, you have things where, um, 
you know, you need the support of your elected officials, you need the support of your community, what values are they looking for, what values do they prioritize over others. And so um, there was a question I was supposed to answer in there somewhere. So I would say there's, there's the electoral politics and the direct accountability to the constituents. There's the bureaucratic politics, which is the way we structure um, the programs that are, are developed and, and created out of the legislation and the funding. And then there's the, the community level politics, what groups are more likely to work together and not work together, what kind of considerations are needed at the community level. And I think we really need to understand all of that because they all have profound impacts on the way we respond to disasters. And I also think that those three entities don't exactly line up and a lot of them, um, they're siloed and so the communication between the three doesn't really happen and I think that's really important to discuss as well. Yeah, yeah and I think it's, <clears throat> it is a little bit hard to conceptualize of how federal policy affects, you know, my neighbor next door. Um, and and what that actually looks like, even though you know we we spend time working with the state and um, and county government, uh, it's hard to kind of track that flow of dollars. Um, so I think over the next you know few episodes, it'd be really interesting to track how that money flows and how those not necessarily laws but regulations and policy briefs can actually help influence some of the the local activities. And I think that's really the big impetus behind doing this podcast is that. You know, we talk with partners out there in the field, and they know that these politics have a big impact on their work. But that, but you know, you can't ask the question, uh, "What federal policies would you like to see changed?" You know that because unless you're interacting in that very sophisticated, wonky world that has its own language, um, it's very difficult to to sort of see how that trickles down and affects local communities. And on the flip side, um, when you're stuck in that sort of wonkish world and speaking that language, you lose kind of that core sort of value that people are looking for in their lives and in their communities. So I think if we do nothing else, if we're able to increase the fluency across these different sectors and we're able to, uh, you know, give people the tools to help better understand how these things are related and to advocate for community level needs on the national stage, that that'll be a huge step forward in being able to shine a little bit of light on the, uh, the dark matter of politics and disasters. Yeah, and it seems like uh, none of these things are, there are no quick fixes for any of these issues, and that, um, I think you said it once before, it's uh, squishy problems with fuzzy edges. I don't think I said that, but, no. I, I, but I'm really willing to take credit okay. for it, because it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, you know, that they're, they're fluid, they are hard to get a hold of, um, and then they're not just clear-cut as, oh, yeah, it's federal, state, local policy, that there are a lot of intertwining, confusing factors uh, that play in. Maybe she did say that. You might have. I think I did say it. Yeah. I said it. Yeah. I'm taking credit. Trademark. <laughs> Let's hope nobody else trademarked that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm already in a this Twitter. This podcast would be done immediately. Yeah, we're not even on the air yet. I already started a Twitter feud with another <laughs> podcast, which I really like. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Joining me now is uh, Nicolette Lewis-Saint. She's the Director of Programs for Healthcare Ready. Healthcare Ready is an organization that leverages the unique relationships with government, nonprofit, and medical supply chains to build and enhance the resiliency of communities before, during, and after disasters. Uh, a little bit just on uh, Nicolette's background. Nicolette, you have one of those bios that makes me feel like I'm not applying myself hard enough <laughs> in this life. It's really impressive. Um, but before working at Healthcare Ready, she served as a foreign affairs officer at the U.S. Department of State. And in 2014, during the Ebola epidemic, she served as the senior advisor to the State Department's special coordinator for Ebola and was responsible for coordinating international efforts at the U.S. Department of State's Ebola Coordination Unit as that jump-started the diplomatic response. Uh, so thank you for joining us, Nicolette. It's great to be here. I'm really excited to hear podcasts all about the things that we talk about and do every day. So I'm no, really excited to be here. So before we go into some of the work that you're doing uh, with communities and learning more about sort of community politics, especially through the lens of, uh, of the international stage that you, that you were on before this, um, you recently wrote a piece for Morning Consult, an op-ed titled To Bolster National Security, Don't Cut Scientific Research. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit of what that was about. Yeah, so um, 
I, I will admit that I wrote this op-ed in probably about 45 minutes of just absolute frustration um, looking at the implications of cuts to the CDC and BARDA and the NIH and a whole bunch of other alphabet soup, but essentially the health and science enterprise that allows our country to continue to innovate and create and connect with private sector biotech firms and pharmaceutical industry partners to be able to actually create the medicines and the solutions that we need. And really the, um, the main thesis of the op-ed is that investments in science and health and research and development are investments in national security. And the, the primary idea when we talk about um, medical countermeasures in our space and when we talk about um, the idea of being able to have drugs that are in the pipeline that can respond to disease outbreaks and attacks, that requires that we do a lot of advanced work to make sure that we understand the science, that we are able to predict things that may be on the horizon or potential threats, and that we also value the importance of understanding diseases and chemical agents as being as important and as much of a threat to national security as traditional forms of military warfare. And so really the, the op-ed was, was really an attempt to take a look at the ways in which we should be looking at agents and potential threats to our national security that, that for, for people who have this conversation every day, it makes a, a bunch of sense. But normally, we don't think about bacteria and viruses having the potential to be a, a national security threat. It just, it's just not how we, how we normally approach it. Um, but, but it's as important that we can pre prevent a, a pandemic um, or be able to have medications to offset the, um, the implications of a radiological or a nuclear attack or a chemical attack, um, that's as important as making sure that we have a strong um, military and a strong traditional defense system. So that's yeah, what the op-ed's about. No, and I, I think it's great, and I think, you know, it's consistent with the best op-eds that are written in 45 minutes from a place of frustration. <laughs> <laughs> but it's um, but you know it's interesting you say too as you know I've been poring over uh, the president's budget blueprint and other folks have looked at it right there's no shortage of get frustrated about and angry right. about even beyond disaster preparedness but um, but you know you bring up a good point that it it um, the the thrust of the budget does seem to take a very kind of Reagan-esque view of national security that it's very military oriented very overseas very um, you know, interdicting conflict overseas to prevent terrorism from coming this way. And you bring up a great point that with infectious disease, with natural disasters, with so many things, that can't be solved by a strong military presence or by a large border wall. Absolutely. Um, I've had many, many conversations about the proposed budget, um, especially since the op-ed has come out. And my, my attitude on it is that, um, as, you know, as every presidential budget is, it's not, it's, the appropriations are not coming from the president's budget. It is not so much a mandate of how actual dollars should be spent, but rather a philosophy and a set of policies that could be acted out based on these appropriations. And so it's really more, in my eyes, it's always been about the spirit of the budget. It's always sure. been about the philosophy um, or the, the promises of a campaign that are carried out in the investments that an administration is, is suggesting that Congress makes through appropriations. Um, and to me, this particular budget shows a pivot in, in a few critical ways. And I think where we look at the, um, you know, for, for those of us who look at the, the budget every day, um, and really most people should not, it's, it's a very dry <laughs> yeah, 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 But no. when we look at it, it's defense and then everything else, basically. Yeah. And to me, when I, when I interpret this budget, what I see is a, a shift back to, as you said, very Reagan-esque. It's very 
hard power, um, not really valuing soft power. So when you look at the cuts to the State Department, when you look at the ways in which we would be investing in and funding diplomacy efforts abroad, um, those things are not necessarily preparedness, but they're really important to, to having a landscape that makes us more secure. And in the same way, when we look at the health and science investments, they don't all have to be related to our, you know, focus on disaster preparedness, but it shows overall kind of a, a lack of appreciation for the, the pieces of, um, really the pieces of our society that are not as overt and not as deliberate, but play a big role in security and wellness. I guess the one silver lining is, as you mentioned, this is really much more of a political document, right? That this is kind of the opening conversation with Congress, but Congress is the one that actually gets to write the budget and pass the budget. But this is a very clear, as you mentioned, the spirit of the document does uh, prioritize things differently than we've seen in the last eight years and even in the years since 9-11 when a lot of the, the disaster preparedness funding uh, that we have today was largely created and, and scoped out. Um, so um, as, we, as we think about the budget and as we think about how these larger things affect uh, communities and affect preparedness at the community level, um, you're doing work in communities, right, with Healthcare Ready. Uh, yeah. What's some of the work that you guys are doing? So we are, um, we, we kind of have two hats that we wear. During disasters, if there is a, an event, a disease outbreak or a disaster that affects the local community, we essentially take the role of helping the helpers. So when we think about how folks at the Red Cross, local government, um, some of our great partners like AmeriCares and Direct Relief International are able to connect with the private sector and kind of ground truth some of the issues that they're facing and, and respond to the needs that are actually happening in real time, they connect with folks like us. And so um, most recently, for example, um, as actually the snowstorm that hit um, New York and I believe it was kind of went all the way up the, the Northeast Corridor mm -hmm. um, a couple of weeks ago, we had issues where communities were concerned about deliveries of medicines um, simply because with the snow, the trucks were stuck in rest stops um, all, you know, all across interstates in Pennsylvania and New York. And so working to make sure that those communities have their medicines and the supply chain can get back up and running as quickly as possible. Um, working with um, Baton Rouge, actually a clinic in Baton Rouge that serves a rural population um, that otherwise would not have access to continuous care. And when the floods happened a few months ago, that entire clinic got wiped out. All of their medical supplies, their medicines, everything was just gone. Um, and we were able to work with the private sector and work with our partners at AmeriCares um, and also with the state government and make sure that all of the things that they needed to get back up and running in 48 hours were delivered. All of the medical products and supplies that they needed were able to get to them. I think we were able to fill all of the requests and get a grant for them to be able to do any of the renovations to their property in two hours. And so that was pretty amazing for us um, just to be able to contribute in that way. So during disasters, that's the type of work that we do. Um, but lately, um, we've been really interested in looking at branching out and doing more in the space of community resilience and really engaging communities in preparedness activities and thinking about ways to kind of weave in preparedness activities while they are working on other issues that relate to sustainability or community wellness, as opposed to kind of the in addition to all of these other things that you're trying to do, also add on this preparedness program. And so right now, I'm actually really excited to be working in the city of Baltimore with um, some of my community colleagues on the implementation of a Baltimore Resilience Hub. And it's this idea that um, the mayor's office and the previous administration began and the current mayor is, um, is continuing and looking at how we can actually create resilience hubs in geographically um, populated parts of the city 
where they're actually nested inside of already trusted community organizations. And so these are nonprofits or, you know, churches that are trusted by the community, have the capacity to, to really do more to promote community resilience and also support that part of the community throughout the events that may happen. But they need to know more about preparedness. They need to know how to kind of think it through and what their capacity should be and all of that. And so that's where we come in and we're, we're looking at taking best practices, making suggestions, creating guidances, connecting them with other parts of the private sector, um, giving them the appropriate trainings that they need, and really working alongside them to scope this in a way that can really be a best practice for other cities across the country. So it sounds like then that there's a lot of political will in place for this, right? That there's a lot of, I mean, you mentioned the mayor's office in Baltimore and a lot of these community centers that are, you know, they maybe they're not elected officials, but within the politics of a community, they're known and trusted entities. Right. Um, so is, is that kind of the concept behind the resilience hubs is to, to kind of bolster these, these um, uh, for lack of a better term, maybe these political forces within the communities and to kind of backstop them with the expertise or... How would you characterize that? Um, I think that's a big part of it. I think a, a big piece of um, the momentum that we've seen with the Resilience Hubs in particular has been, um, frankly, the, the, the aftermath of the Baltimore Uprising of 2015. Okay. And so after you see civil unrest. Okay. And you are in a city that is going through a bit of a renaissance and a, and a transformation. And um, I think the, the benefits and the impacts of the transformation are still to be determined. Um, but you have this unrest in the middle of all of that, that change. Mm -hmm. And so the people who are invested in the city are mm -hmm. changing. And the politics are changing as a result of that. And so I think a big part of the investment in the resilience hub is this reality that the dynamics of the city are changing, the needs of the citizens are changing, and so they need to create a system that's going to reflect that. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because it seems like that almost sort of uh, in the aftermath of uh, either the failure of politics or where politics maybe becomes a barrier to to forward action, and then and then when a disaster strikes or there's a period of civil unrest where it sort of reaches this breaking point, all of a sudden, like the the conversation dynamic changes, and all of a sudden it becomes very salient. We've seen um, even in, in New York, in Staten Island, in Brooklyn, some grassroots organizations, really communities sort of organize around these, these you know, ad hoc political relationships within the community to be able to advocate more strongly with their local and their state leadership. It's really an interesting model. Now, do you see like an influence? I know we were talking about funding before, and there are a lot of different disaster funding programs. Um, do you see that influencing the way that resilience is done, or do you see this sort of happening in parallel with the, those more structured funded programs? What's what's the relationship between all of those? I, I see our funding investments as being very reactionary, and so I I think. What, what I've seen is that a lot of the investments happen on the tail end of, um, of major events. And so, um, and I think that is a theme that we see in kind of the ways in which political investments are made in this type of a space. And so, as you mentioned, kind of grassroots involvement and the way in which the grassroots can shift the politics and then ultimately shift the investments. I think that's very much what's happened is that events have created an environment where now the climate is is more is more permissive to this idea that we would be able to make investments. It also allows the grassroots and other community-based organizations to be able to have a voice that can be amplified. And so I think that plays a big role in shifting the politics and then the domino effect is then making the investments. My concern is that a lot of those investments, because they're so reactionary, will right. be short-lived. Yeah, and, you know, that, that's really, um, I think, a great point. And here we have just sort of this rich dialogue emerging from communities 
um, sort of leading the way, creating models for other communities. And um, uh, but but will that actually percolate up to the national discussions on the way that we budget preparedness, particularly in this current climate? Absolutely. I, one of the things that um, one of the trends that I have been watching and the shift that I really do like at the local level is the integration of health equity and resilience. Mm -hmm. um, I, I spend a lot of time, even in our own organization, um, working on integrating the health equity framework into a lot of what we do um, mm -hmm. and, and looking at the ways in which we can bring about transformative change um, through that framework. And I think what that has allowed at the local level, that integration of, of health equity into the discussion, is now you're seeing positions that are being created in some key cities that are designated as chief resilience officers, sure. chief equity officers, mm -hmm. um, sustainability officers that have the mandate of working on equity, sustainability, and community resilience. And so now it's pulling in a level of relevance that transcends immediate events. Mm -hmm. but also situating someone um, at the level of um, a, dep you know, a deputy commissioner or um, reporting directly to the mayor gives a certain level of political capital that allows them to affect change. And so we see that in Boston. We see that um, in Seattle, I believe. Um, New York, I believe, yep. has a deputy commissioner that also is the director of health equity. And so we're seeing that happen more and more. And so the hope is that that also can help to continue to sustain that energy. And, you know, it's interesting because one of the big catalysts of these chief resilience officers is, of course, the Rockefeller Foundation's uh, 100 Resil Resilient Cities initiative that really sort of set out a different kind of guidance and kind of is underwriting uh, many of these positions. And, again, just sort of a, a anthropic organization helping to sort of change the political dialogue and help sort of drift it um, towards more inclusiveness and, and a broader definition. How does this compare with, uh, with the work that you did on the international stage? Do you, see, <laughs> do you see parallels with this kinds of issues and the kinds of personalities? Is it just completely different and, and a, a reinvention <laughs> of, the, <laughs> of everything? Well, um, you know, people are people. And so <laughs> <laughs> the um, the the quirks that you see and the ways in which um, you know the interpersonal elements of negotiation and collaboration and partnership that that's everywhere. I will say that there have been many times, especially when I first started working on domestic issues, where I I longed for the easiness of working in the UN system. And anybody who's worked in the UN knows that it's an absolute maze. And you can have three hours of negotiation over and being placed in a sentence or the word or being placed in the <laughs> same sentence. Sure. Um, but I will say, you know, the, the difference is that you're looking at, at a certain level. And when you're looking at international health, even from the perspective of, doing diplomacy and, and science and health diplomacy, you're looking at the national level. And so you're able to make investments and do some penetration down to the local level, but ultimately you kind of leave the forces and the, the culture and the dynamics of that, that country to itself to determine how exactly those policies or practices or investments should trickle down in most instances. It's very different when you are really in the, the weeds looking at how individual cities and individual communities and individual personalities are able to shift things that are going to affect populations of 100,000 to a few million people. So I think that is something that um, really jumps out at me. And, and when I first started looking at domestic issues, I, I think I said every single day that, you know, I, w I would give anything to work on a region and just cover 25 countries because covering 25 countries at times can be easier than dealing with the, the complexities of one state in the U.S. 
You know, it's, it's so interesting. And just in the last 20 minutes, right, we've talked about the federal budget. We've talked about international politics. We've talked about community politics. Right. Um, but there's just so many interesting things, and there's so many um, different ways to unpack this and so many different political forces. Uh, we're so we're going to continue to do this podcast and continue to talk about all these different issues. And, and I hope we can have you back to talk through some more of these, uh, some more of these things as they evolve. That would be great. I'd love to come back. So how can people find out more about uh, Healthcare Ready and if to follow you on Twitter or social media? Um, where can they find you at? Yeah, so um, I am on Twitter. You, you can follow me at nlewisaint-phd on Twitter. Um, my, my Twitter feed is normally filled with everything from public health and disaster preparedness to wrestling and football. Nice. Um, so um, WrestleMania is coming up, and I'm very excited. Um, and Healthcare Ready has a Twitter handle, which is HC Ready, um, on Twitter. And we are also our website actually is I think the best place to go to hear more about us and also see the things that we're doing in the news. We have an active blog as well where we try to keep up on all the recent issues that are relating to healthcare preparedness. Um, and that is healthcareready.org. I actually should also mention that during emergencies in the United States, whenever we're requested, we activate a map that is called RxOpen, and you can find that at rxopen.org. And what that map does is wherever the event um, that may be taking place is happening, we will have a map that is refreshed periodically with the status of pharmacies that are in that affected area. Thanks again for talking through all this with us, and just thanks for the work that you're doing um, just on disaster preparedness and on disaster resilience. Um, we're, we're lucky to have folks like you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I had a great time. Joining me now is Vicki Johnson. Vicki Johnson is the co-founder of ProFellow, a platform for professional and academic fellowships. And before that, she served as the director of policy on the congressionally mandated National Commission for Children in Disasters, and prior to that, as a senior policy analyst for public health preparedness at the National Association of City and County Health Officials. Vicki, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, so uh, during your time uh, with NATO, let's start there, where you were really sort of working a lot at the intersection of these local and national stakeholders. Uh, can you talk with folks a little bit just about uh, what kind of work you did there? Sure. Uh, well, NATO is a professional association that represents local public health departments at the federal level. And essentially what this means is that when federal policymakers and federal agencies need input on a policy or grant program or any initiative that affects or requires the involvement of local health departments, NATO is an organization that can speak on the diverse interests and needs of local health departments. So um, in my role in particular, I worked on public health preparedness, which during the time that I was there, it ranged from general emergency management planning and response to natural disasters but also really specific issues such as pandemic influenza and bioterrorism. And I think you and I actually first met when you were working at NATO, right? I was working for a local health department, and I think it was during oh, the pandemic right. flu yes. days, right? That's yeah. right. <laughs> we were worried about bird flu back then, and since then we've had uh, pig flu and cat flu and all different kinds of flus. <laughs> I always found NATO to be really interesting uh, when I worked in, in local health because it was this kind of advocacy body, right, where it sort of was the portal where you went from Beltway, D.C., and kind of national policy and national stakeholders and kind of entered into the world of local health and really sort of helped kind of bridge all of that. Um, what, so in this kind of work that you did, um, what did you notice sort of about that? What kinds of questions and resources uh, would you say that local stakeholders were looking for? And how did that compare with what national stakeholders were looking for? Were they similar? Were they different? What kinds of questions sure. or, um, were they well, looking to answer? As you know, having worked at one, almost all local health departments have, you know, a limited and finite set of financial and human resources to plan for and respond to threats like a natural disaster or an infectious disease outbreak. So, you know, what they need most, of course, is a sustainable source of funding for the work that they do, and that includes, you know, local state taxes as well as federal financing and grant programs. 
so with through nature they would seek guidance on you know what to prioritize with their limited resources given the current state of affairs and science and and sort of what's at the forefront um, but also they look for best practices and approaches to dealing with challenges whether you know you're a big city uh, metropolitan health department or you're a small rural county health department with just a few employees now national stakeholders on the other hand you know they have federal money and resources to distribute at the state and local level, but they want to know from the local level, you know, how should they effectively distribute this money? And for them, you know, cost effectiveness is really important. There's a million problems and threat scenarios that could potentially happen at any one time, and, and you really can't do it all. So for federal stakeholders, you know, they want essentially the best bang for their buck, uh -huh. and they yeah. also want to be able to measure progress. And so that was like a major challenge too when I was at Nature was, you know, defining what is preparedness and what are the metrics for measuring progress when you're spending money, public money. Yeah, you know, I remember this time too, particularly when the pandemic flu planning spiked up and there were some supplemental funds for pandemic influenza. And I remember um, that came right after a cut in kind of the all hazards preparedness funding. Like we were sort of coming down off of this peak that came right after 9-11 and right after the anthrax attacks. And uh, there right, came exactly. a, like there was this initial flood of money and then came all these questions of, of um, where's that money going? Um, right. And around that time, too, I think I remember there were some different reports from the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, and others really sort of pushing these uh, granting organizations like uh, Health and Human Services and the Centers for Disease Control to, to be better at measuring. Was that, was that around that time? Yes, yeah. And so, yeah. you know, that was sort of one of the things that Nature would do was to help get a lot of local perspectives on how they could define preparedness. Mm -hmm. It's a very difficult thing to define when you're preparing for something that hasn't necessarily happen yet or, or may never happen. <laughs> right. So it's sort of, you don't see how your money is making a difference, um, except the people that are implementing these programs and preparedness do know. It's not something that's really publicly seen, sort of all behind the scenes. Yeah, you know, and I, I remember, too, it's something where, like, the value of the money was always sort of known, you know, working at a local level, but then to actually quantify that in a way that was salient to lawmakers um, who were accountable to districts. Right. Yeah. And if you're a lawmaker that's not one that's focused on public health or pol in that, that world, and you're thinking about a budget and you say, I need money over here for uh, economic development or for infrastructure or other things, of course you're going to question, well, how and why is this money being spent and what are we getting for it? Which is a very legitimate question. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I seem to remember, too, this was around the time when the transition with uh, uh, sort of the first generation of the creation of the Department of Homeland Security and sort of this perspective of, you know, if you can imagine it, it's a threat. And then when Michael Chertoff came on board, really sort of trying to reconcile that with the declining budgets and saying, no, this has to be more intelligence-driven, it has to be more outcome-driven, I think we saw some of that kind of mirroring in the public health preparedness world at the same time. Yes. So a lot of these grant programs that sprouted up after the federal money that was going to the states came after 9-11 that you mentioned. And really when it was created, it, those grant programs really weren't meant to be permanent grant programs for states and localities, but they, the states and localities did become quite dependent on this funding to maintain the preparedness systems and staff that they had developed. So it was kind of a, it was a really difficult, it was sort of inevitable that the money was going to start to decline. Um, but then, you know, like you said, there was little top-ups when we had a pandemic flu um, concern. Then, you know, Congress would add some money to that and we'd be back on track. But there was always this, uh, there was always this concern that this funding isn't sustainable and, and shouldn't be considered sustainable. So that made it really difficult for state and local health departments to really figure out how to plan their budgets and, and hire staff and, and uh, maintain stockpiles and other things. So, yeah, it was really... Uh, sticky problem, but, you know, we sort of had to deal with it day by day. Yeah, you know, and I think what you're saying, too, sort of strikes to the core of a lot of the battle over preparedness funding generally that's going on right now. Um, I don't know how much you've tracked the uh, uh, President Trump's blueprint budget and some of the cuts to disaster preparedness, and even the more recent, there was a, a round of suggested cuts for the remainder of the fiscal year 17, and one of the justifications for cutting the public health emergency preparedness program, which goes primarily to 
state and local health departments was that in some ways it was redundant with the hospital or the healthcare preparedness program, um, which also covers health and medical response, but it also gave the number, um, I think it was uh, in the neighborhood of $18 billion have been spent to create, you know, sort of a baseline level of preparedness. And so I, I'm going back to your point where, you know, was this money sort of a one-time down payment on getting the nation prepared, but or has it actually sort of created um, this infrastructure that requires constant funding and ongoing funding in order to uh, sustain this disaster preparedness infrastructure? And that seems sort of at the, the core kind of ideological divide between increasing funding, sustaining funding, or reducing it. Yeah, and I, and I think if you're if you're whether you're just a citizen or a policymaker that isn't really that plugged into what public health is. The infrastructure that you talk about isn't brick-and-mortar buildings or even stockpiles or other things. It's people. Um, so when you're high, you know, when you reach a level of preparedness, it's about exercising responses. It's about who's going to be. Uh, do you have enough medical personnel who have skills to deal with children? Um, do you have enough people that can respond in a rural area if you don't suddenly, if if, if a disaster strikes and you only have uh, five people in your <laughs> health department? So yeah. it's people. So people cost money, and, um, you know, there's also a bit of a, a hit on sort of this idea of, like, yeah, big government and too many government workers, but the government workers are what sort of keep our preparedness sustained and going, and they're doing the silent hidden work that I mentioned that you don't really see, but is, is there sort of humming in the background that's keeping us prepared for emergencies. Yeah. So I think there's a, a bit of education on that, <laughs> about what preparedness actually is. It's people. Yeah, and I think disaster preparedness in general finds itself in sort of that perpetual problem of public health in general where how do you prove the value of something that never happens, <laughs> you know? Right, like, exactly. It, yeah, like isn't it great that you woke up today and didn't have smallpox and, you know, like how do you... Right. Um, I used to say to folks, you know, that there'll never be any movies made about, you know, public health preparedness and then, well, then they made the movie Contagion, so I guess I have to revise that, that statement. <laughs> Thinking like you know, you can have uh, the biggest, baddest uh, stockpile of vaccines in the world to deal with the next pandemic, but if there's nobody trained and able to distribute the the vaccines, it's completely pointless. Yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, exactly. We have to use these scenarios when talking with policymakers to help them understand, you know, that threats to public health funding, threats to emergency management funding, it's really a threat to this the state of preparedness that we've built, and it's not because we're misspending money or that uh, you know. I'm sure things, inappropriate things have been bought, but I, I think yeah. for the most part the money has gone toward staffing um, from what I saw when I was working at NHO. So yeah, and concern it, about how can we maintain our staff. Yeah, and, it, and in a lot of ways, like the stockpiles and things are sort of conceptually easy problems. I mean, obviously there's a lot of complexity in the right. execution, but it's filling a warehouse, but then actually having the, the staff to put it in your arm. I mean, those are much more... Um, I've been attributed with the quote that these are squishy problems with fuzzy edges. Um, the jury's right. still out on right. if I've actually said that, but I think we'll go with it. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, speaking of people, um, so after you left Nature, you worked for the National Commission on Children and Disasters, um, which was really, I think, just a, a, an incredibly interesting uh, group that was stood up uh, by Congress. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what the commission was, what your role was there, um, and sure. what the work that the commission did. Sure. Um, as you mentioned, the, the commission was established by Congress to create policy and regulatory recommendations on how to address or really better address the needs of children in emergency preparedness, response, and recovery at all levels of government. Um, so when I was there, I served as policy director, and I brought to bear my experience in emergency management policy and public health policy. Um, but the commission itself uh, was 10 experts from a wide variety of disciplines. This is child protection, child poverty, public health, pediatric medicine, foster care, you name it. And that, that group of experts, they met in person quarterly, but it was the commission staff, of which I was a part, that worked full-time on developing, you know, stakeholder outreach, reviewing the policy and laws, working with the federal agencies, and really developing in writing what would become the commission's recommendations. So, uh, you know, 10 different people, probably, you know, a dozen different perspectives. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> 
so it sounds pretty easy, right? Wrangling all no, but um, so how did how did the different experiences, kind of the different perspectives of these groups, come into this? I, I mean, I would imagine that they had very different political views, very different sort of value propositions from the perspective of what they were advocating for. Um, but how did that sure. sort of intersect? Well, one good thing is that all 10 experts were interested in, in addressing the needs of children. That was their number one priority. So we had a common ground of, of that. Um, but they all did come from different disciplines. But I should say that in developing the commission's report, um, this report was based on a what much, much bigger platform of perspectives than just the 10 commissioners. Um, okay. We, as a commission, gathered stakeholder input as far and wide as we could. Um, we worked with uh, leadership at federal agencies, uh, particularly HHS and FEMA. Uh, we also worked with other child protection agencies, um, we, uh, nonprofit uh, organizations that do social services for children. We gathered expert feedback from pediatricians, emergency managers, uh, foster care experts, nonprofit social services, um, and we did field visits to, to visit um, areas impacted by recent disasters. Uh, like we went to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, which had major floods and tornadoes, and we're sort of mm. grappling with uh, long-term recovery. So, I mean, the, the hard work was actually just getting, uh, we, we thought it was critically, critically important to get a lot of, just get just the down dump of information from everybody and anyone who's ever touched this space. Um, and then it was, it was sort of our job to kind of piece through it and, and sort of bring to light and amplify the things that really stood out as, wow, these are critical, these are critical recommendations, and we need to amplify them. Um, so, you know, as these recommendations came together, and it sounds like you guys really just went out of your way to make sure that you sort of crossed as many political divides as possible and get as much kind of rich information, um, did you find that there was more investment in it, that there was more ownership because so many different stakeholders were involved, that they felt that their voices were heard, or, or how, were you, how were you kind of received along the way? Oh, absolutely. That was definitely part of the, the strategy that we developed was that, you know, there are people that have been working on these issues for years and years, even before Hurricane Katrina, which was sort of the impetus for all of this. Uh -huh. um, and a lot of them had developed policy recommendations, which unfortunately just hadn't received the attention that they deserved because, I don't know, if it's a smaller organization or it's an issue that just didn't have the media attention or a spotlight that it needed. So the commission really could amplify and, and bring it to bear because we had a direct connection with Congress and um, the Obama administration to tell them, you know, these are, these are important and there's an evidence base to say this is what should be done. So, um, you know, I, I would say, you know, interestingly enough, I don't think politics was really, it didn't really impact us because, I mean, children really is a, they are a bipartisan <laughs> platform. I mean, I, yeah. I, there's really very few, few groups that would say that they're not concerned about the needs of children. Um, it, it was just more difficult, I think, expressing why specific issues were important and why specific things needed to be funded or needed attention because you did also, I think one of the, the main opposing arguments is like, well, why children, why not elderly people or disabled people or other people that didn't get that sort of specific attention that you're seeking? Mm -hmm. and so, you know, that was, that was what we had to really drive home. And for us, the argument was is that, you know, for much of, you know, communities are really kind of do revolve around children. You know, a lot of mm -hmm. our, our workforce or people of, of workforce of working age, many of them have children and their their working lives revolve around are my children in school, are my children in care, um, do they have the medical services that they need, do they have the attention that they need. And if that can't if those needs can't be addressed by parents, those parents can't successfully recover or get back into the workforce or um, deal with their finances and the logistics of their household. So for us, you know, if children can't be recovered in an emergency and, and have their needs met, then the wider community is going to suffer. I mean, even your own emergency managers, the people coming to the disaster site, many of them have children. <laughs> so just yeah. imagine what they're grappling with, working long hours and, and dealing with it. And meanwhile, they may have lost a home or the children aren't in school or they're thinking about childcare. You know, this is, it's, it's really serious. It can't really just be left not unattended and, and uh, otherwise, the, the, the wider community suffers, including people that don't have children. Yeah, and you bring up a good point. There's a lot of um, research done, including by, um, by the center that I work for, the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University's Earth Institute, um, that really identified children as the bellwethers of recovery and that connection of children to their communities. But also along those lines, like you said, um, you know, some of the work that um, – 
uh, Lori Peek, who's at the, the National Hazard Center in Colorado, has um, uh, did a presentation for some work that we did on um, how the trajectory of a child can be disrupted by a disaster and that the way the community recovers, and it could be, you know, unexpected members of the community could be the difference between the trajectory of that child being placed back on a track where they have the opportunity to thrive or um, or really going down just sort of a, a descending spiral of mental health issues and addiction and isolation and that, that there's a vulnerability there that persists for a lifetime when that trajectory That's is disrupted right. by something like a disaster. It sounds, too, though, that um, that because you had the congressional mandate and the support of the Obama administration, that you guys were really able to elevate a lot of the work that had been done over the years and give it a platform to sort of amplify uh, this message so that it could be heard in ways that it couldn't previously be heard. Is that fair to say? Yes. I mean, that's, that's exactly it. Um, we, you know, in, in many ways, like sort of like NATO, the commission served as almost an association representing all these various smaller groups that have been advocating for children for years. And so mm -hmm. we could be this umbrella group that could come together and say, look, we've got a report and there's hundreds of stakeholders that have contributed information, policy recommendations, evidence-based anecdotes that, that support what we're, what we're recommending to do. And for that reason, you know, we have the ear of Congress. Now, did we, did we get all of those recommendations implemented? No. We definitely did not, um, but we did, we had a few wins, um, and some of them kind of came after the fact. Like one was, uh, you know, Senator, Senator uh, Mikulski, they had in 2013 passed the Child Care and Development Block Grant Act, which which in, now included a um, requirement that states have a statewide child care disaster plan that met specific criteria. Um, so this came a little bit after the commission, but this is something we were working with them on, um, and, and it was just a big win because you know, states and state lawmakers can can push back and say, you know, oh, any law, this is an unfunded mandate. We don't sure. have funding to do this sort of thing. But when you, you know, if our strategy was, well, where is the where is this funding coming from, and where can we insert places where we can create a law or requirement that sort of just is the unfortunately the stick that kind of gets people to do things that they that they might push back on if it was a voluntary thing. Um, and so, uh, you know, that was a big win. But you know, other things like um, we had a recommendation that Congress create, you know, a flexible grant funding mechanism mm -hmm. to support uh, mental, mental health treatment for children and impacted by disasters because we saw that the programs that were in place were very inflexible and very sort of rigid and got cut short too soon before they could really make an impact. Um, as far as I know, that hasn't been passed. I haven't heard, you know, I don't think that's really gone anywhere. Um, but that's because, you know, we didn't convince lawmakers that that should be a funding priority. We did our best, <laughs> but you yeah. know, there, there was many things that required funding, and there's a lot of competing priorities. And this is just one thing out of you know thousands of things. So you know, you take some, you you win some, you lose some. Um, but I feel like we did make some progress in certain areas. So oh, uh, that, that, for that, we can be be proud. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, it, so would you say that that's one of the primary reasons with the recommendations that have been implemented and not implemented is uh, just coming down to being able to make kind of the value proposition and the funding argument and competing priorities, or are there other other reasons you think that, that may have contributed Definitely. to Definitely. I mean, well? a, lot of it, a lot of it is finding those champions um, that, that sort of have that power to do it and convincing them that this is, this is worth doing. I mean, um, you know, FEMA was really supportive of doing things um, with, with Craig Fugate's leadership. I mean, they were very uh -huh. supportive about including children. He was, he was a big proponent and supporter of, of a lot of the stuff, and he created interagency groups to, to look at children and including them in the, in the federal response. Um, and if he, had been deaf, if he had had deaf ears about it, not, we wouldn't have gotten anywhere um, working with FEMA as an agency, but it was because of those you know, there's empathetic leaders that, that listened and said, you know what, this is important, and I can see I can see why. But, it, it, you know, it's a hard job to, to as a policy advocate to, to make the case because, you know, we're very aware of the fact that there's a lot of other competing priorities that are, you know, it's difficult to say what's more important than something else. Um, you know, we have ongoing child poverty. We have ongoing education issues. We have ongoing, right. um, you know, lack of funding for general public health. So, you know, it's uh, sometimes that's why it's like, the small wins are so <laughs> yeah. so meaningful because you know it's it's sometimes it's also a matter of luck you know the timing is right you have the right people in the room and uh, yeah. they say yes let's do this 
So, so across the work you've done with the Commission and with NATO, um, kind of looking at the next four years um, under the new administration and some of the budget priorities that have come out, I'm not sure how much you've been kind of tracking along with some of that. Sometimes it's hard not to track along <laughs> with some of those things. <laughs> it's out there everywhere. But um, do you have um, concerns, hope, thoughts where the glasses may be half full, half empty, three-quarters empty? <laughs> what are your thoughts kind of looking well, at uh, this I new landscape? Yeah, I think half full is that I know there's a lot of people working in government, and I think some some groups have given public service a bad name, but there are many, many, many people working in public service. I would say more than probably most that are really committed to this to the work that they do, and it's very important to them. And, and those people aren't going anywhere. There there are, you know, that's a tide of of opinions and expertise and um, hard work that is that's. Not can't just be washed away by ideology or or a new administration. So I'm I'm confident that those people are going to continue to fight the good fight for the things that they think are important on behalf of the whole public. Um, glass on the other side, I think you know the funding cuts to the states is going to be a reality, and and that's going to be across all the various different parts of you know not just public health, but you know lots of different areas. And um, this idea that states are now going to have to fund these initiatives on their own. Um, is really going to unfortunately impact the states most in need. So, you know, states with, you know, high levels of poverty and, um, you know, sort of, uh, low, you know, poor, poor education and other things, I mean, they're the ones that are going to suffer the most because they're the ones that are more reliant on the federal funding than states that are more prepared and have more resources. So um, that will, we'll see what happens. <laughs> uh, they're going to have to make a strong case to keep that funding in place. Um, but, you know, I think the current administration is really looking to cut spending federal to state, so that's that will just be something. There's a long, hard fight ahead <laughs> for that. Yeah, and there's really, it seems like there's this sort of mix, and like you mentioned, some of it's ideological in terms of what government should fund and what government shouldn't fund. And in other ways, in sort of looking through the documents, there's looking at, you know, what was the original funding for, and if it's migrated, should that be revisited? And the other is demonstration of success. And I think this is one where, you know, as we were talking about before, that the uh, the ability to prove that prevention is effective is incredibly hard to do. Um, That's right. And, you know, particularly for something that, you know, bioterrorism, you know, and uh, and competing with education funds and things like that, it's it's limited resources. And, you know, it's all, uh, it's all part of a giant Rubik's Cube. You can't change one thing without changing three other things. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for for joining and talking through all of this with us today. Uh, and you know, I think in this first episode, we're getting a good sense of the landscape of the different kinds of politics and things that are out there. But um, we, you know, we're we're gonna sort of touch on each of these issues much deeper in individual episodes. And we'd love to have you back at some time. Okay, I would love that too. Thanks so much. Before we go, though, uh, can you talk a little bit about what you're doing now with ProFellow? It's just, I think it's just a great program. It's just a great resource for folks looking for these fellowships. And um, talk a little bit about what that is. Oh, sure. Well, I'll just say I started out my career in emergency management through a fellowship program called the New York City Urban Fellows Program. And I was um, right after I graduated in 2001 and was, went to New York City, and I moved there just two weeks before 9-11 and, uh, to start this program. And I hadn't been put in my full-time work placement yet in my city agency, but I ended up working at the New York City Office of Emergency Management. And so that became, as you can see, my career path for the following 15 years. And I did a couple other fellowships, one in Germany, one in D.C., and one in New Zealand. Um, and so my, uh, when I was uh, completing my Ph.D. after the commission, I I founded a site with my husband to create kind of a central source of information on these funding opportunities for individuals. And so, you know, for those of you that are interested in public health and preparedness and emergency management, there's a lot of interesting opportunities to be funded for graduate school or um, to do research or to get into a certain career field, to get your foot in the door in government. So I'd encourage you to check out profellow.com. And, and um, no matter what discipline you're in, you, you probably will find an interesting opportunity to be funded. Wonderful. And uh, so thanks again, Vicki, for joining us today and for talking us through the experiences and pointing us to some resources on on fellowships and, and the work that you're doing now. It's just, it's really impressive and uh, um, we're really fortunate to, to have folks like you out there. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jeff, and I appreciate the work you do too.
All right, we did it. We recorded the first episode of Disaster Politics Podcast. I want to start out by thanking Aaron Sennert and Jonathan Surrey for being on the opening panel, and to our two guests today, Nicolette Lewis-Saint from Healthcare Ready and Vicki Johnson from ProFellow. I got to return the shout out to the boys at the Dukes of Hazards podcast. You can follow them on Twitter at Hazards Podcast or subscribe to them wherever fine podcasts are distributed. And if you like what you hear today, give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to this. If you didn't like what you heard today, then maybe wait a little while on the rating. You know, we're just starting out. Okay, give us some time to get our, our feet firmly planted on this thing. Join us next time. We're going to talk about health care, and we're going to talk about the CMS rule. We're going to talk about funding and state and local politics. I'm getting excited already. In the meantime, talk to us on Twitter. We're at Disaster Politics. And until then, stay safe out there.